And perhaps the reason we don't know very much about these magi is because Matthew isn't all that concerned about giving us the details of their identity. Uh, maybe the intent of the story, or uh, as Matthew tells it, is to compare different ways of reacting to the action of God breaking into human history. Did you catch that? Perhaps the intent of the story is to contrast and compare two ways of reacting of how God breaks into human history. Uh, you see, in the story, there's, there's this implicit comparison between the Magi and the chief priests. Uh, Herod, that Herod calls them both together, meets with them separately, and what the Magi are doing is they are traveling and they're seeking something or someone that they actually know very little or nothing about, but they are seeking earnestly. The priests, on the other hand, have all the knowledge, but they aren't seeking. You see, they don't, they don't move from their comfortable seats of wisdom and leadership, even when they are presented with the news uh, that, that, um, that fits the knowledge that they have claimed to prize, right? Uh, in other words, when, when Herod asked, where is this king supposed to be born? They know what the prophets have said. They know the answer. They know all the details of what should happen. And yet they aren't seeking. They're filled with knowledge and lacking with seeking. So perhaps part of the story and part of the point of the story is that knowing and seeking aren't always the same thing. I think that's important to us and for us. It may also come as a surprise to us to find that the Magi and Herod have something in common in this story. That it's actually the Magi and Herod, King Herod who are the ones doing the seeking. Uh, in Herod's search for truth, he consults both the chief priests and the Magi, but what he discovers is rather sobering. At least it's sobering to someone who is only concerned with holding on to power. He discovers that foreigners have come to worship this baby who is called a king. And Herod's response is one of threat. Herod immediately feels threatened by this news. He is threatened by a child who is born on the borders of his power because a small group of dignitaries from outside of his realm have come to worship this child. And if you are someone in a position of power who is also kind of focused on maintaining your power, drunk on that power, then news of people coming from hundreds of miles away to worship a child on the borders of your power is going to be very, very threatening to you. For who would travel hundreds of miles to worship a baby? You read further on in the story, past the text that I read this morning, and you'll discover that Herod is so afraid of losing his throne to this child that he wants to have him found and killed. In fact, his words to the Magi that he also wants to go and worship this child are in fact just a trap. We learn later on in the story that this is not at all his intention. His intention is to snuff out this threat to his throne and to his power. And it strikes me that in this epiphany story that we learn two things that are as important and as relevant to us today as they ever have been. The first is, 
It's shocking how far people in power will go to protect their own power and status. Okay? That's the first thing. That, that when we read the story of Herod, it's important to re- recognize, too, that like Christmas has a bad guy, right? <laughs> like for, for all the sentimentality of, uh, surrounding the Christmas story, we often kind of gloss over that Christmas has a bad guy. Um, but Herod is, is so focused in, on his own power and maintaining it that he feels threatened by a child born on the borders of his power. And so it shows us just how far people in power will go to protect their own power and status. But perhaps more importantly, it shows us this. Remember, the Magi are not from Jewish descent. They're traveling hundreds of miles to visit a child who is called a king. These are foreigners coming to visit. And so immediately what we learn when Jesus is just a child, right? He's not, probably not an infant at this point. He's probably a toddler a couple years after his birth. And what we learn then is that the kingdom of Christ has no boundary, that his lordship is over all, and his light shines new possibilities over all of creation. Do you get the contrast? You, you have this King Herod who is threatened about his power, his throne, everything is about his status, his position, And so when someone comes from outside of his lands to worship a child who was born on the borders of his own power, he feels threatened. And what it shows is that the kingdom that will Christ, that will be built onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ, have no national boundary. That he is Lord over all. And that his light shines new possibilities over all of creation. It's a rather, a rather stark contrast that the Gospel of Matthew is trying to portray to us. And I would just say that all of these centuries later, isn't it so much the same? How easy it is for those, on who, how easy it is for those who think of themselves on the inside, who have all of the knowledge, who have all of the easy answers to feel their status, their power, their position is threatened by those that they consider on the outside. And yet God continues to work, often in the margins, to include those on the outside. And so for any, of, for any who think of themselves on the inside, Epiphany is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale that Christ and his light can be even in our own midst, but we want to snuff him out because he challenges the status quo. And for any who think of themselves on the outside, epiphany shines the light of good news that anyone who is seeking is welcome to come and find Christ. Amen? Well, on this Epiphany Sunday, I'm also reminded of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a well-educated Jewish man who made a living from persecuting the followers of Jesus. He would go around and anywhere that there was an uprising of followers of the way, that was the original name of Christians, followers of the way, 
And any, anywhere that he was getting rumors of followers of the way, he would go and he would, he would uh, storm in and arrest them and march them off to jail. Sometimes overseeing or participating directly himself in the stoning of these followers. And, and listen, we sometimes think, oh, Paul, what an awful guy he was before his conversion. But we must understand that he was a well-educated Jewish man who was doing all of this out of religious zeal and religious conviction. He wanted to make sure that his, his faith, his religion stayed pure and was not stained by the message of this so-called Messiah. And so he went around with conviction, with zeal, with passion, persecuting followers of the way. And then one day, the Apostle Paul, who at the time was known as Saul, has this dramatic encounter with the living Christ, and his life has changed forever. And what's interesting is that after his encounter with the living Christ, his main ministry becomes bringing the good news of Jesus, the Messiah of Jewish lineage, lineage to the Gentile world. But the Apostle Paul, who once persecuted the church out of religious zeal to keep the Jewish faith pure, becomes, after conversion, an evangelist to the non-Jewish world. Are you seeing this? Where he's planting churches and he's telling the Gentiles, there is good news available to you as well. And in fact, this Jewish Messiah is Messiah over all of creation. It's a it's a phenomenal, phenomenal change. In fact, I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 3. It won't be on the screens. I just want you to hear it this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 says this. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's apostles and prophets. And the mystery is this that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Wow. The Apostle Paul, not wanting his faith to be stained by this radical message of Jesus, then becomes an evangelist to the non-Jewish world to announce to the Gentiles, the good news is also for you. Paul's ministry in light of the light of Christ is that the gospel includes Gentiles. And if you read many of Paul's letters, you'll discover just how controversial this claim was. In fact, this was the principal struggle of the New Testament church. Should we welcome Gentiles into our fellowship? That is the principal struggle of the very first Christians. As churches were, 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 were cropping up and, and the followers of the way, this movement was beginning to build, the, the principal wrestle and struggle of, of, of what should we do and what does it mean to be followers of this Jesus was should we also include Gentiles into our fellowship. And Paul's ministry was to go around planting churches and to proclaim that in Christ, the people of God are, is, have become the church, which is made up of any and all who will call on him by faith. And the nation of God now becomes the whole earth. That's Paul's message. 
And his primary ministry then was to proclaim that those that you've always considered on the outside are now included in the promises of God. No wonder he was such a controversial picture or person. And no wonder he found himself multiple times in jail. Because as it turns out, those who hold positions of power and status don't want the status quo interrupted. (laughs) And here we are this morning. 99% of us, Gentile believers, celebrating epiphany which is itself a recognition that the gospel is for the whole world. Because the Magi were the first non-Jewish visitors to the Christ child. A recognition that the the lordship of Jesus Christ is for all. Imagine the irony if a group of a whole bunch of Gentile believers got together started discussing about who's out and who's in. (laughs) The original group that that felt the weight of welcome, (laughs) then trying to decide who's out and who's in. Because none of us, none of us are struggling as Gentiles whether the gospel is for us or not. But oh, how we struggle with whether the gospel is truly for those who are not like us. Those who felt the weight of the good news to begin with, now implicated in withholding the good news from others. There's a Franciscan theologian and author named Richard Rohr. He wrote this little pamphlet, really. It's just a very short thing called, What Are We to Do with the Bible? Or something, What Are We Supposed to Do with the Bible? Something like that. And in that book, he writes this. The only sinners with whom Jesus is publicly upset are those who insist they are not sinners. And Jesus only excludes excluders and only condemns condemners. (laughs) Whoa. Think about that. I'll read it again because I feel like you didn't capture the weight of it. (laughs) The only sinners with whom Jesus is publicly upset are those who insist that they are not sinners. Jesus only excludes excluders and only condemns condemners. Here's my epiphany invitation to you today. My epiphany invitation is that we would learn to see the radical invitation of the gospel to all people. That we would learn to see the radical invitation of the gospel to all people. And in so doing, also recognize the tremendous potential the gospel has to transform each and every one of us. That there is a sense in which when we recognize the invitation to all, it is not just they who are changed, but we as well, that we ourselves are also changed.
Well, let me say a word of prayer, and I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, today we recognize that this Epiphany Sunday, this day on the Christian calendar that is often overlooked, uh, this day that does not appear on our national calendar, and yet for the people of God called the church, it has so much to say to us. So much implication for how we go about our lives. And so God, I pray today that you would speak to our hearts. That during this time of gathering around your table, during our time of prayer, that you would speak to us. That your Holy Spirit would be freely at work among us, uh, Lord, to convict us, to encourage us, to do your work in our midst. And God, for your work, we'll be certain to give you praise. So God, be with us. Speak to us, we pray. May our ears be tuned to your voice so that we also may be known as followers of the way. Not just a gathered social club, not just a group that gets together because we like to, but God, that we are pursuing what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. So God, be with us in these moments. Speak to us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.